Welcome to the Share Your Story podcast. A space where you can hear people's true stories to inspire us to live better ones ourselves. Hello and welcome back to another Share Your Story podcast. Today we're hearing from Petra Tilly, a Devon-based artist. She's going to tell us her story of helping her son through his mental health struggles and how that led her to an area of work helping other carers. Being a carer is really hard work and we spoke a lot about how a lot of people won't even realise that they are carers. There's a lot of support networks out there for people helping a friend or family member. We will post these on our social media. Petra talks really honestly about her experiences and worries as a mother, but also her own struggles she's had over the last few years. If you have any thoughts or just want to have a chat about things that we speak about in this episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and www.shareyourstory.space. We are also encouraging people to use the hashtag stories for mental health to share their own experiences. We have two more days left of stories and we'll also be posting lots of written work and other interesting links on our social media over the weekend. So keep an eye out. Thank you for listening and we'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Petra and I'm a mother and an artist and a wife and a creative therapeutic play practitioner with children and I live on Dartmoor. I grew up on Dartmoor and my one ambition was to stay on Dartmoor and I have managed to stay on Dartmoor and I just am so grateful for that because going through what we did go through as a family um actually i you know i find nature and being in this environment and being able to walk in familiar places on dartmoor very comforting and healing to me um and i think if i didn't have that i think how would i have coped you know i barely coped anyway but just having something that hasn't changed in my life, something that's remained. And because Dartmoor's a national park, you know, there are woodlands and tours and features that have remained constant. So when other things in my life seem to have fallen apart or people have died, you know, when there's so much change and I've not been able to control anything and I've just thought, I can't bear it. There are parts of the landscape that have remained constant and that is, um, you know, I'm really grateful to the fact that I live here. Before what happened to Max um, became apparent, I had just got to a point in my life where I thought, um, oh, everybody's left home and they're doing their own thing. And I had discovered, you know, having been an artist for most of my life, that actually I was interested in doing something therapeutic with that artwork. And I was thinking I'm going to go back to study and um, 
So I had just started a, a postgraduate um, course in therapeutic play with children, uh, which was a bit of a strange coincidence when... Um, so I was doing that course and I was learning things which I had never known before about attachment theory and trauma in childhood and how it affects our development and emotional and mental health. And, um, and then things started going wrong for Max. Well, Max was at university in London and I thought that he was doing too much and maybe not making the most out of his social life because he seems to be concentrating on his work which is a good thing but he was also concentrating on his music and he was also concentrating on doing a pirate radio show and when he was talking about these things he his he seemed to be getting very um tense and agitated about um and about people not turning up on time. I mean, things were beginning to annoy him and get on top of him, which they hadn't in the past. And also his humour. He was losing his sense of humour about stuff. His perspective. He, he um, yeah, th things were getting a little bit out of balance. And then he came home to work with us one summer. And we have an outdoor event catering company. And he's always been so good with people, so sociable and easygoing and so confident. And I noticed that he was quite um, reclusive and hadn't got the confidence he used to have. And he was going to bed early and keeping himself to himself and he wasn't joining in conversations. And he seemed to be very much involved with his own thoughts. And I thought, I thought then he's too too wrapped up in his own inner world and thoughts and this isn't like him and there were some conversations on the phone when he was back at college that got me really worried and then Max rang up one uh, day in March just to, and he, instead of saying mum I'm not coping very well is it all right if I come home he just said um I've decided to come home. I'm going to live with you and Rupert. That's his stepdad. Um, and I'm just going to chill out for a bit. And I'm going to ditch university. And instead of going, oh, well, is that a good idea? I was so relieved because as a family, we knew something was wrong, but he wasn't telling us. So I just said, well, that sounds a good idea. Um, yep, that's fine. And... So a few months before the end of his third year at university, we went up and picked him up and he came home. To begin with, it was sort of okay, but there were things that just... <sighs> he just wasn't the same person. It's hard to describe. Refusing to eat with us, it was very weird. I can't, I mean, it's so long ago now, but it sort of spiralled down and he was staying in his room for longer and longer periods of time. And, you know, we'd say, well, you know, come down for lunch. Come, And he wouldn't join us and he became quite hostile and um, would say things like, well, you know why. And we said, well, no, we don't know why you're being like this. Please, you know, explain, tell us. Um, I now know later, now he's better and able to tell us that 
he believed that we were contaminating his food. He had these um, olfactory hallucinations, really unpleasant ones, and with taste. And I suppose when you have a hallucination and it's so real for you, you look around to see, well, how can this be? And we were the nearest people, so we must have been causing it. At this point, Max was saying things to me, but he wasn't saying them to Rupert. And it was almost like uh, Rupert was his ally, because Max, at this point, thought it was me doing these things. He decided I was the person doing these things and that Rupert was all right. Um, but when... And it was a bit difficult because Max never said these things when Rupert was around. But when Max blew up, it was in front of Rupert. And actually, that was almost a relief because then it's like, oh, it's not my imagination. <laughs> you know, then Rupert realised the the enormity of what was happening for Max. Um, and so then together we tried to persuade him to get help, but Max wouldn't budge wouldn't get help um, but he had confined himself to his room that was his safe space no we wanted him to get help because we loved him and we didn't we we didn't know what was wrong but obviously something seriously was wrong and um, and we didn't know how to help him and we tried contacting people to get help but the, the story we got back was um, Unless he becomes a danger to himself or others, there's nothing we can do. For the time that he was living in Exeter, wherever he was, I would go and visit um, and try and rebuild and re-establish our relationship. And my trust in him and his trust in me, actually, because I didn't trust him because he was quite scary at times and I didn't know what to believe and not believe with him. And then Max's behaviour started spiralling downwards again. I would go and visit and he couldn't get in the car or go anywhere because he of his paranoia and fear. But he was much more open and talkative to me at that point about what his beliefs were and what his fears were. And to cut a long story short, it was before Christmas and they said they couldn't do anything until after Christmas because the holidays and short-staffed and the day that they went and had their meeting after Christmas with Max I now know that they were telling him in effect oh you know you can't continue living here anymore um, and you're not engaging with services so in effect he probably heard and been made homeless and he was already in a state of heightened anxiety his inner world and turmoil was already frightening enough and that probably was the last straw he he was again he ran off and was lost for i think it was 38 hours and police and lots of people were looking for him and uh when he turned up it was such a relief so it was a relief to know he was safe but even then i was asked if i thought he should be hospitalised and I couldn't believe they were asking me this and I was at such a breaking point at that point because you know there's someone that we loved so much and he'd been 
spiralling down and getting progressively worse for five years. You know, it had been happening over a long period of time. And it's so obvious he needed help. And I remember saying to them, well, if you don't hospitalise him, I said, I'm going to strip naked and break glass and admit myself because I would love to have a period of on medication and in bed with nobody, um, with everybody cooking for me and doing everything for me at the moment because I can't take any more. Because <laughs> I was at, literally, I was just like, you know, it was just, Yeah, well, he found himself um, on a psychiatric ward. It was a low-security recovery ward. And um, it wasn't a purpose-built building. It was a building that had been uh, appropriated because of shortages, and so it wasn't ideal. The meeting room was also used... The, the visiting meeting room was also the kind of conference meeting room for staff so it was like a <laughs> it was like an office conference room with 12 tables chairs around tables and no tea or coffee making facilities and if you're visiting you needed to go to the loo you had to sort of knock on the door and somebody had to come for key and then you were supposed to go on the ward escorted because you weren't shouldn't have been on the ward it was a very awkward place to get to feel comfortable but they supported us all as much as we could. But again, there were staff shortages and lack of resources. And it became quickly apparent that actually, because of that, um, Max and others just spent a lot of time in their rooms. Mm. And that was something I found very difficult. You know, they were supposed to have football organised, but only because motivation is very hard for people when they're suffering um, the way Max does. But he would turn up, but because only two other people would turn up for football, it would be cancelled, and I got, and so they'd be sent back to their room. And I just thought, this is ridiculous, because, you know, you can do football skills, and, and you've got to grab the opportunity, you know, and things. So I started jumping up and down about that. If somebody is left in their room for long periods of time ruminating, um, that's and that's not going to help them. You know, they're going to get stuck in their depressive thoughts or their delusional thoughts, whatever they are. If they're stuck on their own, they need to be engaged in conversation and activity and doing things. And also, the staff knew this, but there was nothing they could do. It was just, you know, yeah. I'm very fortunate because Roops uh, felt that we could afford for me to lessen my workload. Mm. So I would go twice a week to visit Max. And then Max got more leave and we would go off for walks. And one of my favourite memories is when he had a birthday and I made him a cake and we went to the beach. And the fact that he just so excited about eating the cake because it was such an amazing thing for me because there had been a time when he thought I contaminated his food and wouldn't eat anything. So for me, it was so lovely to be able to give him that gift and him be well enough to really enjoy it. So that was great. And um, then he got permission to come home. I think a big part of helping him was our dog. We got, after eight years of um, not having a dog, we got a young dog. And the first time we asked if he could visit Max on the wall, the dog. And um, 
this is in the early days and Max was finding it very difficult to engage or have eye contact with anybody but he felt safe and immediately took to Woodruff our dog and Woodruff was just brilliant and a great source of conversation because it you know it sort of directs the conversation away from him or us and just focus on the dog brilliant absolutely brilliant he was in hospital for two years and uh, it was quite often commented how well he was doing but I think that's because he was getting a lot of input from family and we were fortunate because we lived close enough to do that where some families they have to travel you know miles and miles and it's not easy for them so Max and we were very fortunate in that case and then he was discharged a year ago there were the discharge wasn't well handled um, typical system balls up in that he was given uh, 12 hours no 24 hours notice and um, because it was all very rushed there had been no transition no, nothing in place for him when he came out and they said they said and they rang me up and I was in Cornwall so it was lucky that they managed to get hold of me because the mobile phone there isn't good and it was my birthday so I remember it very well and I said, oh, what do you mean? When's he being discharged? And they said, well, he can stay here tonight, but after tonight he won't be insured to be here, so he's got to leave. And I said, well, where's he leave living? And they said, oh, he's going to go to emergency bed and breakfast. And I went, no, we're coming home. He's going to come and stay and live with us until something's sorted. I said, that's ridiculous. Putting anybody, uprooting anyone who's feeling maybe strong and well in themselves and confident, uprooting anyone out of the blue and dumping them into an unknown environment would undo any of the good work they'd done. The system, the mental health system, just seemed crazy itself. Anyway, now, after getting to know the brilliant people who work in that system. It's not the people, it's the fact that the system is broken and there's such a lack of resources. Anyone working in mental health, they don't do it for fame or fortune, they do it because they care. And I know that, you know, I know that in my heart, I, I know they do it because they care. Um, but unfortunately, there aren't enough of them, there isn't enough time in the day that they have too many uh, the caseloads, I don't know if you know how to say, but you know that they have too many patients and not enough staff. The ratio is appalling. The, um, there just isn't the money or the resources to give people the care that they want. And so it's a very uh, medical, medication um, heavy system for for helping people with mental health problems but it's not holistic enough it's not looking towards the emotional support the psychological support the diet support you know it's not looking at the whole person the other part of my journey now is i've i've learned that because a lot of people in mental health they're firefighting so 
There are so many people suffering that unless something really disastrous happens, they're not going to get the help because the numbers are too great. So it has to be a real crisis. So yes, it is whether there are dangers to themselves or others, but it has to be really, you know, quite full on. And um, that there's also because it's uh, so there's not the time to to spend that when people are sectioned they're quite as soon as they're stabilized they're quite often sent out quite quickly but it's a revolving door and quite often they come back in because there isn't that support like my son found there wasn't that support day in you know you need regular day in support day out support to help people back into the world socially emotionally psychologically and so people do end up going back in and out and back in and out yeah so what's happened is because I've, I've become a bit um, of an agitator um, because when you see some of the horrendous things that are happening they they just defy belief and so um, I've become a professional complainer but I was nervous to do that to begin with A because I didn't want to make things worse for Max you know I didn't want people to think oh god he's the one with the moaning mother but actually a lot of staff have supported me in my complaints and I quite often would say look it's not you guys because I know it's not you guys but I have to complain because this has happened um, I've had to learn the language as well that they use which isn't a familiar everyday language is quite dehumanizing and difficult but once you've learned the language then people listen um, and I've been working with the carers trust to try and highlight the fact that throughout somebody's illness and well-being and not well-being the one constant they will have normally is a loved you know either a partner or a family member or a friend who's known them before they became ill whereas a lot of mental health workers will only meet these people when they're ill and in crisis and that also because staff change so often the only consistent people in a person's life will be their loved ones, the ones who people love them, their family members, their partners, their brothers, their sisters. And so listen to their carers. I now know I'm a carer. That's another thing, you get labelled carer. And I would say, well, no, I'm his mum and he doesn't live with me, he doesn't want to. No, you're the carer. So using their terminology, getting the NHS and the Devon Partnership Trust Mental Health Services to listen and work with the carers um, because they will be with that person after they leave hospital and the next time if they're going to be in hospital in a different hospital they will be with them throughout whereas um, you know mental health workers might only be with that person for a very short time so there's a lot of work to be done there and understanding and working collaboratively and there's a lot of work um, I've also joined the lived experience advisory panel um, and the ex experts for experience um, which is a self-help peer supported um, charity local charity 
and it was meeting those guys people who have you know various different diagnoses of different mental health problems who've been through the system but who they support each other and um, help each other manage and um, meeting them was the, and this I can't emphasize enough but it was the first time that I had hope for Max and I realized though though you know that this he wasn't going to be in this one state permanently that things can change that they do change and um, but before that point I I didn't know so I've been working with them and um, as an expert through experience because I'm an expert carer now and one of the things we're trying to do um, working with Devon Partnership Trust the mental health our local mental health services um, they've got a steering group called together and that is trying to work collaboratively with experts for experience and peer support and mentoring but also one of the things that a lot of us want to try and change is the language <laughs> because when people are in crisis and in heightened state of anxiety the professional clinical language is a it's unfamiliar but b it's so un yeah it's dehumanizing you know it it doesn't make you feel like oh this is this is going to be caring and helpful and it's cold you know it's difficult enough when you're feeling well to understand that language if it's not you know your professional language but when it's when you're in a state it's impossible to so we're saying you know if you want to give somebody a lifeline then use language that's familiar and warm and friendly not the sort of leaden way to professional clinical language which is totally unfamiliar to us and anyone so that's something and I think they're taking it on board so that's very exciting good side of our journey is that after I know oh god the first four years were hell and I know you wanted to ask me about one of the worst things and one of the things I realized is that one goes through a grieving process because the person you know and love isn't there anymore and you have to grieve them and I think the Japanese refer to people suffering that way as ghosts and I kind of understand it because you see the person you know, you know and love in front of you and yet they're not there and you can't understand why all your shared experiences and memories and all the love that you've shared doesn't count for anything and it's it's not there in their kind of reasoning and you can't reach them and so it's and the other thing I realize is you know you hear about the Victorians and they used to think people were possessed you can understand that if that was your belief that you believed that people could be you would understand that because the person you know you can't reach them they're not there it's like well their body's there but that's not the person I know who's talking to me in that you know really odd way so you go through grief and it is really hard and I think it took me about four years before I started to accept that the Max I once knew was gone and to accept the new Max that was here I didn't stop loving him all that time but it's it's 
you know, I was angry. I was angry that this had happened. I was angry and I had no one to direct my anger to. I mean, that's mm. that's part of grieving. Um, the other the other thing of I felt guilty for things maybe I should have done better when he was a child or was there something I did wrong, you know, and that is also a very natural part of grieving. Um, there was, so you go through the whole gamut of grief and just, you know, heartbreak really. Um, the help I got was from friends and family and I'm very fortunate again because we live in an amazing community. You know, um, people here are very accepting and understanding and amazing. But I wasn't offered professional support or help because whilst Max refused help himself and didn't have a diagnosis, then I didn't warrant any professional help. I did at one point go for some, um, because I was depressed, mm -hmm. and so the doctor put me on antidepressants, but I was a bit nervous about that because there was a reason I was depressed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just couldn't stop crying because there's nothing I could do to help Max. I couldn't, you know, when it's like watching someone you love and they're drowning and they're flailing around in the water and you're putting out your hand and you're touching their hand but they're not grabbing it they're just and you can't reach them it's just horrible it's just horrible when you know someone's suffering that much and you can't help them one of the most helpful things was meeting the group the bridge collective and meeting people who've come through similar experiences as max and knowing that there was a way out for them that he wasn't going to be stuck in that terrifying place you know, because I can't imagine the world he was living in inside his head, but it was terrifying. And you just don't wish that on anybody. So it was very helpful to meet people that had been there and they were surviving and they were coping and they were supporting each other. And they're amazing, lovely people, you know. <laughs> and I, I've made some really good friends there as well. You really do need peer support. It helps to meet people, experts for your experience. It helps to know that things will change and that they can change and that there is hope. And okay, it's not, it's a hellish journey and it's a difficult journey, but it's not going to be that for the whole time. There is hope. And, um, I mean, like I said, I wouldn't wish this on anyone, but bizarrely, I feel that this whole experience actually has enriched our lives. I think I have learned a lot. I've learned to, um, I've found my voice. And when I have found things that just don't make sense and seem so unjust, instead of going, oh no, I mustn't say anything because, you know, I'm not a professional. I, I am. I'm an expert for experience. And I I can now say, look, this is so wrong. It's got to change. And I really believe that this, you know, things have got to change. The culture's got to change. Um, society's culture towards mental health has got to change. It shouldn't be frightened. It shouldn't be scary. It should be, we should be able to talk about these things freely. Um, because it's just a small aspect of somebody, it's not their whole life. And I really 
it's just like um you know if somebody has lost a leg that's just a small part of them it's not the whole person it's you know the we've got to realize that it's not frightening and it can happen and does happen to us all at varying degrees um and we can help one another if we're talking about it and kind to one another mm. i really i really because there is not enough money but the most important thing which i know which i can bring from my own work working with children into the adult mental health services is i know the importance of the therapeutic relationship it's our relationships that are important it's our ability to be comfortable and feel safe with another person that's important and that's where the shortage of resources has really hit mental health services because people don't have time to build those relationships but those are what in the end help people to help themselves it's been a funny old journey <laughs> but i've like i said i've learned to find my voice because i've had to i've actually absolutely had to because otherwise too much damage could be done and and one can't sit back and just go okay he's he's doing well um he's getting into his music he's making music again he's slowly gaining social confidence there's still a long way to go there um he's been helping us i mean he's he's great when he does come home he's he's like he just mucks in and really helps and like he's been helping build a barn recently which was no small achievement learning and doing things he hasn't done before but just and he's just it's just been great for us because it's been really helpful and he's back you know we've got max back and seeing how far he's come in the past year is just incredible and seeing how far he's come in the past three years is amazing yeah i do still work one day a week um with this one school um, with children to be honest the the stress of the last or the early years of Max's illness um, have taken a toll on my own sort of energy levels and, and health so I actually feel that these days I have to look after my health a bit um, but also the work I do with children is really important and again because it's the therapeutic relationship it's continuity that's important so i have to be sure that the work i take on i'm not going to let those kids down and that i can be there for them and give them the continuity um but so at the moment i'm just doing one day a week and that's manageable working with a few kids that day i work with children who suffer from you know children who've had maybe very difficult early life start and have as they call them behavioral problems and anger issues and violence problems well if you find someone you love or care for a friend and you're worried about them um, and they won't agree to or can't understand that they need help 
And um, one thing that I didn't realise was that there's something called carer support or carer's trust because unless you know that you've been labelled as a carer, you don't know where to look. Um, but that probably would be one of my first port of calls I would ring up and say, look, I'm worried about this, I don't know what to do. Talk to as many people as you can about it. <laughs> Just offload, yes. I think it's really important because especially in experiences around mental health with people you love and care for and the things that happen, they have such a strong emotional energy and content. It's too much to just keep that inside your body. You know, you will have stress and fears and angers and pains and sorrows and to keep that in the body is just too much. It's, it's just... It's too much emotional energy and you have to find a way to articulate and share that. And when you start finding the words to describe things and share things, then you're making a narrative. And when you make a narrative, you, you can contain those experiences in a sort of story. And when you've done that, then you can actually see and find meaning in what's happened. You know, and also you can see that it's not just this terrible emotional mess. There is a progression, there is a journey. Things do change. You can start sharing experiences with other people and realise that they have similar experiences. And sometimes in sharing, somebody will be able to articulate something that you haven't been able to articulate, because, but because they have empathy and have similar experience but they found a way to articulate it that actually then helps you love does count for something and kindness counts for something and you've it's compassion you know you have to find that and it is very powerful and I've seen it in people who work in the mental health services you know and it's that that actually is at the root of all relationships you know we're not so different from one another and there but for the grace of god go you or i and um i would hope that if i was in that situation there'd be people that loved and cared for me and if you had someone in that situation then that's you know even my prayers for Max when he wasn't with us was that somebody somewhere was looking after him and and that I used to have this one prayer actually that the obstacles that he had inside himself and outside himself were removed and that he would um, that people would be able to reach him but I now know that even in the darkest part there's a little bit of them that's still somewhere there and it just needs to come out again you do have to look after your own health and when i started having um when i sort of went to the doctor said oh you know you're going to have to take this i really want you to take medication for the depression petri otherwise it's going to become chronic and um 
I have to say, I could then turn round to Max and say, because he was like, mm, you know, against this and wasn't going to have help. Actually, it does help. It gave me the breathing space. It it dullened my anxiety to the point where I could think clearly again, and it just gave me a little bit of breathing space. Nothing had changed in our situation, but I could think more clearly because there was a time when I just couldn't keep it together, Cedar. I was just in such a heightened state myself of stress and anxiety the whole time. And I couldn't work during that time and I couldn't sleep and I was just crying all the time and I was a nervous wreck. And, I, and there's only so much you can put onto your partner. Your family and close ones are important, but actually sometimes we're too close. Forget about the, the dynamics of sort yeah. of um, somebody being unwell mentally and being a parent it's it's hard enough anyway when someone's well the, the dynamic, the relationship between a mother and a son or a mother and a daughter there there are things, you know mm-hmm. it can be a really good one but there's always you know, it's a, it's a very intense relationship between a father and a mother in their thing or between siblings or something so sometimes it does take somebody from outside to be able to to hold your pain thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode if you want to get in touch or find out more head to facebook or instagram at shareyourstory.space or on twitter at underscore sys space you can subscribe on the apple podcast app itunes or across various other platforms And you can also get in touch with us or learn more about us through our website, www.shareyourstory.space. Thank you again. Bye-bye.